Father, I pray that as we approach your word, as we think about what Megan just read for us, and as we, um, as we study it and try to discern what you are teaching us through your word, I pray that by your spirit you would guide what I say, and that through your spirit you would till up the ground of our hearts and help us be fertile soil to receive your word and to receive particularly your word of comfort and peace and your word of patience, Lord, for us who are really struggle to be patient. God, I pray that you would help us this morning. Uh, it's only by your spirit at work that, you're, um, that we're able to read and understand and benefit from your word. And so I pray that your spirit would mercifully work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, we are in chapter 3 of Ruth, and that is because we have divided Ruth up into four chapters as we've approached it. The scriptures divided Ruth up into four chapters, rather. We've chosen to approach each chapter one at a time. And we've heard first from chapter one, the first week of Advent, we heard from Thad as he walked us through chapter one. We saw that in the story of Ruth, we behold real suffering, real famine, real hardship that Ruth and Naomi and their family are going through. We see at the beginning of the book of Ruth that there's a famine in all of Israel and that Ruth and her family, or, or excuse me, Naomi and her family leave Israel and go to the land of Moab. And there, one of Naomi's sons marries Ruth. And we see that in short order, Naomi loses her sons and loses her husband and is left with these two daughter-in-laws and no way to provide. And then she comes back to the land of promise and is now a beggar in the land of promise because she doesn't have any resources in any family. We see this real kind of suffering fall upon Naomi. And for Naomi, she concludes that this suffering means that God is not for her. Remember what she says in Ruth chapter 1 verse 21. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? We saw also in chapter 1 Ruth's response to this kind of suffering. She comes with Naomi back to Israel, and her response to Naomi's plea to go back to your your family and to go back to your land is, no, I will stay with you. I will trust in the God that you trust in because I've heard he is mighty to save. She says in chapter 1, verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. We saw that this is not just Ruth's affection for Naomi, but this is Ruth's recognition that the God of Israel is the true and living God and the one to hope in in the midst of this suffering. As Thad showed us from chapter 1, both Naomi and Ruth encounter serious suffering and famine, and yet at the, at the heart of their response is still God. Naomi responds, God is not for me. Ruth responds, I will trust in him. Both of them are dealing with how to be faithful in the midst of suffering. And they have different responses to the famine that they experience. Then in chapter 2, last week, we saw, uh, as Charlie walked us through chapter 2, that faithfulness, the faithfulness particularly of a worthy man like Boaz, leads to increasing fullness for God's people. See, Ruth and Naomi came back, and they were beggars in the promised land. They didn't have any hope of someone taking care of them. The only way they had to take care of themselves was for Ruth to go out and glean in the fields like Charlie showed us last week, right? Gather the leftovers of the harvest. And so Ruth does, and there she meets Boaz, who the scriptures describe as a a worthy man who shows faithfulness and favor to Ruth. Grace upon grace upon grace, as Charlie showed us last week, right? Favor that extends beyond what the law requires, allowing Ruth to even come in and harvest among the fellow harvesters that Boaz employs. He even has Ruth sit and eat with him. In 2.14, he says to Ruth, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sits beside him and enjoys a meal with him. A Moabite woman, a mortal enemy of Israel. Boaz invites her in because of his faithfulness. Not only that, but Ruth and Boaz together. Being faithful. Ruth to work, to provide. Boaz to show favor. Together they lead to fullness for Naomi. In chapter 2, verse 18, 
And she took it up and went to the city. Ruth takes up this barley that she had harvested. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. Ruth also brought out and gave to her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Ruth, through her faithfulness, feeds her mother, brings physical fullness to Naomi. Not only that, though. Ruth and Boaz together, their faithfulness leads to a spiritual fullness for Naomi. In chapter 2, verse 20, we read, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi's response, Naomi's view of God is so much different in chapter 2 than it is in chapter 1. And what's the difference? It's the faithfulness of Ruth and Boaz to keep promises, to keep covenant. As we read chapter 2, our hope got restored and renewed. Charlie talked about the the dark clouds of chapter 1 kind of breaking and giving way to this new day, this new hope. In chapter 2, verse 20, again, Naomi says, Naomi says, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And chapter 2 ends with this hope, like Ruth and Naomi will be okay because there's a redeemer and he's near. And our hopes get up. But we see at the end of chapter 2 that it hasn't worked out as we thought it should. Chapter 2 verse 23 ends this way. So Ruth kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Several weeks had passed at least since Ruth first met Boaz. And Naomi reflected, this man is one of our redeemers. Surely he will help us. And has he? No. Why not? What's going on? The question that should rattle around in our mind as we get to the end of chapter 2 is, why hasn't Boaz acted? What on earth is going on? Boaz is here. He's ready. He's shown a willingness to help, but he hasn't done anything yet to really secure permanent help for Ruth and Naomi. And so we come into chapter 3, And see Naomi hatch a plan. See, Naomi's thinking the wheels of providence are turning a little too slowly. And so she's gaining, she's she's growing impatient and she's going to grease those wheels a little bit. And help things along. Like any good mother-in-law would, right? Boaz needs some some help. And and Ruth needs some help. And so she hatches this plan. And we're going to see today how that unfolds. We're going to approach this text of Ruth chapter 3 in three different scenes. We're going to see first the plan that, that, Ruth, excuse me, that Naomi makes and that Ruth agrees to. And then we're going to see at night the proposal that happens as a result of that plan. And then we're going to see the day after the, the promise that is secured because of that proposal. And we're going to see each of those movements in this text. And then we're going to ask as we look at those, what do we learn about the way God works? What do we learn about the way God brings his people from famine to fullness? Through the everyday faithfulness of his people. We're going to look at that together. Let's start in chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. We see first the plan hatched. Verse 1 says, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Naomi's goal here. Is to seek rest for Ruth. But it's not just a rest of like physical work. It's a rest that it may go well for you. And behind that is this idea that Ruth's widowhood. Ruth being without a husband in the land of promise is not good. And needs to be restored. There needs to be a solution to this widowhood and the destitution. The, 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 the poverty that results from that widowhood, widowhood. Naomi wants to be faithful to Ruth. And provide some kind of solution. Notice what she says though. She says, should I not seek rest for you? Should I not? She's thinking, I need to provide this for my daughter-in-law. This is my responsibility. We saw this already right in chapter 1. When she tells these girls to go back to their homes. Because why? Can I produce an heir that you can marry? Right? She's looking to herself and saying, I'm too old to have children. And even if I could... Even if I could, are you going to wait around for them to grow up so you can marry them and you can be provided for by them? She's looking to herself again and saying, I need to provide this rest for Ruth. I need to provide this restoration for Ruth. And so she comes up with a plan as a result of that impatience, as a result of that desperation. Here's her plan. Ruth, wash, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, 
Go down to the threshing floor and meet Boaz and he'll tell you what to do. This plan is risky and this plan is risque. Those two are different words, right? This plan is risque. First of all, I want to look at how this plan is risque. What that means is there is loaded in this plan and the way Naomi describes it, sexual innuendo. There is loaded in this plan the sense that maybe Naomi is telling Ruth to go seduce Boaz. You might not see it as easily in the English. It's even clearer in the Hebrew that there is some innuendo going on, some double entendre, which means a word that means one thing and another thing, right? There's some of that going on in this text. It's also risque because this brings to mind, if we're reading our Bibles consecutively, this brings to mind another circumstance where someone went to someone else and engaged in illicit sexual things. If you get into Genesis 19, you remember that story. We don't teach that one in Sunday school as much because it's kind of a weird story, right? But Genesis 19, after Lot and his wife flee Sodom and Gomorrah and his wife is turned into salt, what do his daughters do? They get him drunk and then they sleep with him and then they have offspring by him. And his, the first daughter, the oldest daughter, guess what her offspring's name is? Moab. Moab. This is Ruth's people come from this illicit union in Genesis 13 or Genesis 19. And now you have another situation where there's a man alone and a woman is going to him after he's had something to drink and fallen asleep and is going to see what happens. It's dangerous. It's risque. But despite all of that, we can answer confidently that this is not the intention of Naomi. And this is not the intention of Ruth, nor is this what happens. You may find some people reading this text as an illicit sexual affair with Ruth and Boaz. And that's not what's happening. I want to be clear about that. And I want to help you guys because in the text, there's some confusion about this. We know that's not what's happening because how is Ruth and how is Boaz consistently described? It says worthy. Boaz is a worthy man. Ruth is a worthy woman. We see in 310, right? Not only that, but Boaz's response is not to take advantage of the situation, but to try to spare Ruth any social embarrassment, right? Let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. They're not trying to cover something up. Boaz is protecting her and her reputation. And he's waiting. He's saying, there's a redeemer nearer than I that we've got to deal with first. So we can confidently say that though this plan is risque, it's not actually a plan for seduction. But it is still an incredibly risky plan. Think about when this was happening. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, Ruth took place when? In the days of the judges. Think about the last time you read Judges. That's another place we don't teach as much in Sunday school, right? Because those stories are so strange and so wicked. Israel, in the days of the judges, was incredibly wicked. So much so that as Naomi reflects in chapter 2, right? Verse 20, uh, excuse me, verse 22. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. In the days of the judges, it was so risky for a young woman to go out into the field and glean, even with plenty of witnesses there, that she might be assaulted. How much more so to go to the threshing floor in the middle of the night? In a land where she had to seek that much protection. She was in the risk of being kidnapped or assaulted. Not only that, but there was the risk that Boaz would take advantage of her. Right? Go to the threshing floor and then do what he tells you. What if Boaz isn't the righteous man we thought he was? What if Boaz actually takes advantage of her? Not only that, Ruth could be tempted to live up to her genealogy. And take advantage of Boaz the way Lot's daughters took advantage of him. There's also the danger to Ruth's reputation. During this time, the threshing floor was a place where people met with prostitutes. So Ruth, just by going there, is indicating, potentially, I'm going there for illicit purposes. Not only that, but even if all of that goes well, there's still the risk that Boaz could reject Ruth. Right? At the end of the day, this is a gamble. That Naomi takes. This is a desperate gamble. And yet we see in verse 5. What does Ruth do? She trusts Naomi. She says, all that you say, I will do. And she goes. 
we learn a couple of things from this. One of the things we learn, first of all, and this isn't the main thing, but I think this is important for us. We learn that the Bible is spicy. We learn that the Bible is spicy. Life in the ruins of Eden does not always fit well in a sanitized, vanilla, flannel graph kind of way, right? Life is often much more messy than that, and there's much more brokenness in the world. And sometimes we can approach the Bible and think, the Bible only really talks about holy stuff, and the Bible doesn't have anything to say about real life, because it doesn't really match real life, right? But this is, this is real life. They're trying to figure out what to do in their desperate situation, and the best they can think of is, let's try this gamble, let's try this Hail Mary and see if it works, Right? The Bible is spicy, and this is encouraging to us because the Bible actually talks about real life. The Bible actually has something to say about everyday life for you and I. But that's not the main lesson I think we should learn from chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. The main lesson I want you to see is that faithfulness is messy. Faithfulness is messy. See, life is full of uncertainty, right? What, what job should I take? Should I buy this home or not? If I buy it, maybe it's going to find out that the inspector missed stuff and I have to replace the whole flooring. And I don't have money for that. What's going to happen? What school should I go to? If I make this choice, that's going to set my life off this way. If I make this choice, that's going to set me this way. Who should I date? How should I raise my children? Heck, should I homeschool them or should I put them in public school? There's all kinds of questions that we have in life, all kinds of circumstances that we're called to be faithful in, that the answer isn't really clear on what we should do. And sometimes, especially the more we think it depends on us, the more likely we are to make rash decisions, and the more likely we are to end up in a huge mess, right? I'm sure all of you have done that. I've done that. We make a decision, we seek to be faithful as best we can, and it blows up in our face. Faithfulness is not neat and tidy. Faithfulness is messy. And the good news of God's providence that we see at work here is that even though our faithfulness is messy, God still works providentially. God still works controlling all things to accomplish his good and perfect purposes to redeem us. Our messiness does not screw up God's ability to work in and through us. No matter how messy your attempts at faithfulness are, and they will be messy, God is still at work. And God will still accomplish his purposes in you. We see that in Ruth because this messy, risky gamble turns out actually quite beautifully. That's what we're going to look at next. Let's look and see what happened. Take heart, Christian. Act and trust Let's see what Ruth did. Because she said, all that you do, I will, I will do. We don't know what she thought of Naomi's plan. She just said, I'll do it. So she goes. In verse 6, she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. Now, there's a couple things we need to know to, to understand what's going on here. The threshing floor. She went down. This is a place outside of the city. A flat place, probably a big stone slab where oxen could just walk around in a circle and stomp on grain to separate the grain from the chaff. And then Boaz had been down at the threshing floor after the harvest, winnowing, which is taking that grain and throwing it up in the air so that the chaff blows away and the grain, which is what you want, falls back down to the ground. So he's out there threshing, and he's doing this in the evening because it's a little breezier and it's a little cooler. And then he goes and has a feast. We read in verse 7, right? Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry. Now, this isn't indicating that Boaz got plastered. This is saying he ate and enjoyed this feast with his fellow laborers. And they they had wine of some kind there. And they enjoyed it. They were merry. This heart was satisfied in a good day's work and in God's good provision of food and drink. And then Boaz laid down. Not because he was too drunk to walk home. But he laid down. Because in the time of the judges especially, you've got to guard the grain you just harvested, right? He's laying next to the grain heaps, not because he's looking for a place to pass out, but because he's got to keep watch. And he wants to be there to hear if someone's approaching and trying to steal his grain. And so Boaz, after a long day, 
and hard work lays down. And then we read in verse 7. After Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. He went down to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then Ruth came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Can you imagine Ruth's anxiety as she's creeping towards Boaz, trying not to wake him up? She's like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do here. She's uncovering his feet and then lying down and waiting. It doesn't seem like he woke up right away. Can you imagine laying there, just waiting, wondering what's going to happen? When is he going to wake up? What's going to go on? Ruth didn't sleep much, I guess. At midnight, verse 8, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Can you imagine Boaz out here waiting, thinking, I might have to wake up and fight off some bandits, and then he goes to sleep, and then he wakes up, and his feet are uncovered, and he's trying to figure it out. He's cold, and he looks, and behold, a a woman's there. Can you imagine how groggy and confused and, 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 and shocked you would be? Like, what's going on? He asks what any of us would. Who are you? Who are you? In, verse, or in chapter 9. Verse 9, excuse me. Who are you? Now remember, the plan is for Ruth to do this and let Boaz tell her what to do. But he asks, who are you? And how does Ruth respond? Verse 9. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth didn't stick to the script. She blurts out this statement, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And what is this? It's a marriage proposal. She blurts out and asks Boaz to marry her right there on the spot. I don't think we can very easily grasp how nuts this is. Like, this is a slave woman, a slave, first of all, telling her master, marry me. And then this is a Moabite, the mortal enemy of Israel, telling an Israelite, marry me. And then this, this is a woman telling a man, marry me. That didn't happen culturally. And not only that, but this is a poor woman, a destitute woman who has nothing to offer, saying to a rich man, marry me. Ruth had some guts, I tell you. She just blurts out this marriage proposal to Boaz. What is Ruth saying when she says, spread your wings over me for you are a redeemer. Ruth is appealing to Boaz saying, marry me because you are a redeemer. And that word redeemer is loaded with so much meaning in the Old Testament and in the New, right? It's loaded with so much meaning. Meaning, we know from our readings of the Bible that Redeemer is used of God constantly, right? Exodus par excellence, right? In Exodus, God is a Redeemer. But also in Isaiah and in the Psalms and in other places all through the Old Testament, God is referred to as a Redeemer. A Redeemer or one who rescues others. One who rescues particularly the poor and the destitute. Rescues those who have no hope. God is a redeemer. And because God is a redeemer, he also set up his law so that his people could learn to be redeemers as well. In Leviticus 25, there's rules for redeeming. They might seem strange when we read them at first, and we're not going to read them today. I'm just going to explain them to you, but there's rules for redeeming. See, what could happen in Israel is someone who owned land, and first of all, why did they own land? We read about that in Joshua, right? God brought them into the land of promise, and then the land was divvied up among them by Joshua under the direction of Yahweh as a gift to his people, as an inheritance to his people. So an Israelite who owned land, this land that was meant to be their inheritance, might be poor. There might be several bad years of harvest in a row, and they might not have any money to support their family. One of the things they could do is they could sell their land temporarily. It wasn't like we sell and buy land, like like this is our land now. It was, we sell this land temporarily, we get some money to support ourselves, and then if things turn around for us, we can pay that money back and get our land back. Or, At the end of seven years in the year of Jubilee, our land would be given back to us by Yahweh. But there was another provision in Leviticus 25 that says, if I did this and you were my close relative, it was your responsibility 
and privilege to pay my debt and get my land back for me. Like this was a way that God's people cared for one another and modeled God as redeemer. This applied to land. This applied to houses. Not only that, but this applied to people. See, sometimes God's people got so desperate, they had to sell themselves into slavery to one another. It was more like indentured servitude. We're kind of familiar with that idea, right? They could sell themselves, and then their redeemer, a kinsman who was near, a relative, would come and pay their debt, and then they would go free. This is all behind this word. This is all what Ruth meant when she said, you are a redeemer. But it's not just any kind of rescue. Notice, it's God rescuing Israel, not anybody else. It's near kinsmen or family members rescuing fellow family members. See, there's relationship involved in this redemption. There's relationship or what we would call covenant involved in this, involved in this redemption. There's a Hebrew word for that called hesed. Chesed. It's a Hebrew word that's worth knowing. I don't bring up the original languages much when I preach, but this one is worth knowing, friends. Chesed is God's steadfast love. God's steadfast love, or we might say his covenant love, his love for his people because of his covenant relationship with them, or the way I want to define it for us this morning, is loyal love. Love that's not just motivated by affection, or motivated by some other circumstances, but love that is specifically tied to the relationship you have with someone and your loyalty to that relationship. It's covenant love. Loyal love. Chesed. Because of this chesed, Ruth was calling Boaz to show this kind of chesed to her. Ruth asked Boaz, redeem me because of your loyal love for my family, because of your chesed. And Boaz says yes. Surprisingly, this gamble actually works. Boaz responds with yes in verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. Boaz said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz says yes. Now this, this marriage proposal was not without risk to Boaz, right? Boaz was risking the financial responsibility of caring now for Ruth and Naomi. The financial obligations of whatever was owed on their land. But not only that, Boaz risked the social stigma of marrying a Moabite. Which was a no-no in Israel as we've talked about In Ruth 2 and Ruth 1. But Boaz nonetheless says yes. Why, despite these risks, does he say yes? Verse 11 says why, right? Verse 11 says, My daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you ask for. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. How do they know that Ruth is a worthy woman? Why is she worthy? He says in verse 10 that this kindness is greater than the first. He knows she's a worthy woman, and everybody does, because of her kindness, which, guess what that word is in the Hebrew? Chesed. Because of your chesed. Because this chesed that you have shown is greater than the first. What kind of loyal love has Ruth shown throughout the story? In chapter 2, Boaz recounts, right, in... Chapter 2, verse 11. She asks, why have I found favor in verse 10? And then in verse 11, he answers her. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. All that you've done for Naomi, Ruth, has been told to me. All of the chesed you have shown, Naomi, I'm aware of. And this makes you a worthy woman. Not only that, but this latest kindness, verse 10, this latest chesed that you are showing shows that you're a worthy woman. What kind of kindness, what kind of loyal love was Ruth showing here? Boaz says it's a chesed or kindness in not going after other men, right? In verse 10, 
May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, there's that chesed, greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Boaz is saying, this is an act of loyal love, asking me to marry you rather than these other people. Why is that? Why is Ruth asking Boaz and not these other people? Now, sometimes we read Ruth over-sentimentally, and we think, Ruth and Boaz are just so in love, and she's asking Boaz because of how much they love each other and how handsome he is and all this kind of thing. There's none of that indication in the text, guys. That's a sentimental reading of the scriptures. Why is she asking Boaz? It's because he is one of their redeemers. And why is he a redeemer? Because he's a relative of Elimelech, right? What she is doing is she is going to her family's relatives, which she ought to, according to God's word, and asking them to redeem. So she's asking Boaz to be the redeemer because he is a near kinsman and he is going to be able to provide offspring for Elimelech and for Malan, her father-in-law and her husband. This is showing kindness or chesed to Naomi. This is why Boaz looks at Ruth and says, yes, you are indeed a worthy woman. Imagine Ruth's relief at hearing that. You are a worthy woman. Someone who came to a land that she was not welcome in. And who who worked night and day to provide and show faithfulness and steadfast love. To show chesed to her mother-in-law. Now hears, you are indeed a worthy woman. This is, in our English Bibles, Ruth comes right after Proverbs, right? And what does Proverbs 31 talk about? The worthy woman who is praised even by her husband at the gates. And Boaz in here in chapter 3, when he says all the townspeople know that you're a worthy woman, he says all the people of the gate know that you're a worthy woman. Ruth is this kind of woman because of her faithfulness. Because of the chesed that she's shown Naomi. She is relieved to hear, yes, and we are too. But that's not the end of what Boaz says. And the next thing he says throws a wrench into all of that. Come on, God. Verse 12. Now it is true that I am a redeemer. That's good. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you. Good. Let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Where has this other redeemer been? Right? If there's someone who's even a closer relationship to Ruth and Naomi than Boaz, and he's been completely absent from the story, what kind of man is he? Is he a worthy man, righteous like Boaz, who is worth marrying? Or is he a rotten scoundrel like most of Israel was during the days of the judges? Ruth doesn't know. But can you imagine her terror at hearing that? Like, Okay, I'm going to be provided for, but who's this guy? I haven't heard anything about him. Why hasn't he come to help me? And Boaz says, don't worry. We'll take care of it in the morning. Lay down to sleep. I I really highly doubt Ruth got any sleep that night. Right? How would you sleep in that kind of circumstance? We're going to see what happens in just a minute. But before we do, I want to consider, what should we learn from this proposal? What should we learn from this midnight encounter between Ruth and Boaz? I think what we need to learn is that chesed, loyal love, leads to fullness and blessing. Or fullness and blessing, the fullness and blessing that God has for his people, for you and for me, comes to us through chesed, through loyal love. The gamble works that Naomi and Ruth try, not because of chance. The gamble works not because of just blind luck, but the gamble works because of this chesed. See, Naomi was willing to risk all of her future hopes by putting it on this one bet because of the chesed that she had for Ruth, the the obligation she saw to provide Rest for Ruth, that it may be well with her, to provide restoration to her widowhood. Not only that, 
But Ruth is willing to follow and trust Naomi's plan and boldly risks everything because of the chesed that she has for Naomi. And she knows that this match will provide what Naomi needs and longs for, which is offspring. Not only that, but Boaz agrees to redeem because of the chesed that he has for Ruth and Naomi. And ultimately, all of these guys are acting in this way faithfully in the time when Israel lacked any kind of faithfulness to speak of because they all have chesed, loyal love for God and his covenant. They all worship Yahweh and follow him and seek to be faithful as a result. Not only that, It doesn't just go one way. This gamble works because in it, Yahweh is showing his chesed to Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. He is answering prayers. We've already seen those prayers. We just might not have thought about them as prayers. Look at chapter 1 verse 8. Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. As you have dealt with the dead and with me. That's a prayer. May the Lord deal kindly with you. The Lord grant that you may find rest. We've seen that word in the beginning of chapter chapter 3, right? The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. What's Naomi doing there? She's praying for husbands for Orpah and Ruth. And what is God doing here? He's answering that prayer. Look in chapter 2, verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done. This is Boaz speaking to Ruth. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. We've seen that language too, right? When Ruth makes this marriage proposal, she's telling Boaz, hey, you prayed this for me. Guess what? You get to be the answer to my prayer. And what is God doing? He's answering Boaz's prayer for Ruth. Not only that, but how does Naomi respond when she hears about Boaz and his kindness? Chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. There's that kindness word again, that chesed, that loyal love. May he be blessed by the Lord who shows chesed to the living and the dead. And here he's answering Naomi's prayer for Boaz. God is showing faithfulness. God is showing steadfast love. God is showing chesed to these people. So we see that the fullness that God is accomplishing in the lives of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz comes about because of the loyal love that they have for one another and for Yahweh. And because of the loyal love, ultimately, that he has to them. It's because of God's chesed that our messy faithfulness actually turns out for good. Because of God's steadfast love for you and for me, that our messy faithfulness actually turns out to blessing and fullness. God describes himself this way when he reveals himself in Exodus, right? To Moses, he says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, steadfast love and faithfulness, emet. Abounding in chesed. Or in Exodus chapter 20, we saw that God will show chesed to thousands of generations, to those who love him and keep his commandments. God is doing that. Our messy faithfulness, our working to keep God's commandments and trust him leads to fullness because of his chesed. That's what we see in here. Scene three, the promise. This one's a little more brief. We're going to walk through it relatively quickly. We see at the end of the night and the beginning of the morning, in verse 14, Ruth lay at his feet until morning. But she arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. So Boaz is continuing to show himself a worthy man who continues to show this chesed to Ruth. He protects her reputation. He says, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Make sure we get up early so no one sees you. Not because we did anything wrong, but because I don't want your reputation to be tarnished among the people of the city. 
Not only that, but he becomes a means of fullness, giving her this six measures of barley. We don't know exactly how much that is. It depends on how you measure it. It could have been like six handfuls. It could have been even up to 80 pounds. Probably be hard for Ruth to carry 80 pounds back to the city. So it's probably a smaller amount. But why does Boaz give her this barley? He gives it to her, first of all, of course, for appearance sake. She may be, people might think if they see her, she came down to get some barley. And then they might not assume wrong things about her motives. Not only that, though. The Bible calls out, he gave her six measures of barley. Six measures of barley. It's not always significant when the Bible says six. But sometimes it is. And here I think it is. Because six is one less than seven. And seven means full and complete. And six means not yet. There's more to come. Right? Boaz, by giving Ruth these six measures of barley, is stating to her, here's some fullness and some more's coming. I'm going to take care of this and you're going to be taken care of. You're going to be redeemed. Wait for me to finish. That's what he's saying to her by giving her these six measures. Not only that, though, look down in verse 17. Naomi asks her in verse 16, how'd it fare? And she tells her. And then in verse 17, what the scriptures record about what she told him or or what Ruth told her mom is this, verse 17. These six measures of barley he gave to me for, he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. In other words, why did Boaz give Ruth this barley? It wasn't really mainly for her sake. It was for Naomi's sake. For her mother-in-law's sake. Why? What is, what is he doing there? What he's doing, first of all, I, I believe, is he's paying what's called the bride price. Which this was not a means of purchasing a bride because women belong to the men. This was a way of the groom saying, I have agreed that I will take care of this woman. I have agreed. It's uh, communicating to her parents or in this case, to her mother-in-law, I have said, I will take care of Ruth. This is the barley that proves it. This is the promise. This is the down payment on that promise. It's the assurance that Boaz will act. That's how Naomi takes it, right? Because she says, he will settle the matter today. She takes it this way. It's not only that, though. There's something else going on here. God is providentially, through Boaz, Communicating something very significant to Naomi. Remember her complaints in chapter 1, verse 21. What did she complain? I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, she had Ruth with her, but she was completely disregarding Ruth. And she was completely disregarding the fact that they left because of famine, right? Her perception of her circumstances was, I went back full, God brought me back empty, God is not for me. And what's happening here? Boaz says, you must not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. You must bring to your mother-in-law this gift of grain as a sign of God's faithfulness and promise to her. As an assurance that God is indeed for her. He's bringing that to her. Saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law by doing that. It is a sign that God is for Naomi. And not only that, that there's more to come. That God's faithfulness will continue to Naomi. That her expression of faith in chapter 2, God's kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead, was not for nothing, but it is true. And it's a sign and a promise of that. And we'll see in chapter 4 how that flows into the promise of offspring. So at the end of chapter 3, Naomi and Ruth find themselves... Redeemed, right? Boaz says, if he will not redeem you, I will redeem you. So they're going to be redeemed either way. But it's not yet. At the end of chapter 3, Ruth and Naomi find themselves redeemed, but waiting. Redeemed, but waiting. And Naomi counsels Ruth to wait with hope. Verse 18, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. Why? For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Keep waiting. But you have this promise. You have this six measures of barley. And you have his word that he will take care of the matter. 
that he will settle the matter today, that he will not wait, not rest, but he will take care of things. Friends, this is the ultimate lesson we ought to learn from this chapter. That we, just like Ruth and Naomi, are called to wait for the one who will not rest. We are called to wait for the one who will fulfill his promises. Turn with me to to Romans chapter 8 real quick. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is Paul's theological reflection on the reality of the testimony of all of Scripture, including the story of Ruth. See, we see stories like this over and over and over in God's Word. And Paul reflects on this pattern and helps us reflect on this story. First of all, we must wait. And waiting is hard. Paul says in Romans 8, 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Like Ruth and Naomi, we do not know the day-to-day details of our redemption. There was so much still that Ruth and Naomi, even in their waiting, did not know. And there is so much that you and I do not know. You do not know what kind of suffering awaits you. You do not know what kind of joys await you in this life. You do not know what tomorrow will bring, much less what this afternoon will bring. And yet we're called to wait with patience and with hope. Like Naomi, we can be tempted to interpret whatever suffering comes our way as God, I went away full and God brought me back empty. What the heck, God? Right? We can be tempted to interpret it that way and we can be tempted to grow impatient and act even foolishly. We wait, and the waiting is hard. But this story and Paul's reflections on the pattern of Scripture teach us that all things, even our suffering, even our foolishness, even the mess we make trying to be faithful, all things work together for our good. Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, we know. Over and over from the pattern of scripture. Over and over from stories like Ruth. That all things work together for our good. Not only that. Like Ruth and Naomi. We wait confidently. Why? Because we've been given assurance. We've been given a promise. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right? All Ruth and Naomi had to go on was six measures of barley and a promise from Boaz. What do we have to go on? We have the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, we know that whatever this life brings, we will be redeemed. We We will be restored. And Christ will get the renown. Right? This this story is just one example. Over and over and over, God's word testifies to us that the new heavens and the new earth are coming and that there will be no more tears or crying because death will be no more. And that forever we will live with God 
and see him face to face and enjoy his presence. And there will be no need for sun because the glory of his presence will be there. That's what we wait for. And we don't wait without hope. We don't wait without a promise. We wait confidently. And we've been given the confidence through our Lord Jesus Christ that no matter what we experience in this life while we wait, nothing, nothing will separate us from his chesed towards us. Right? Romans eight thirty-five to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Even if you are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this is chesed. This is steadfast love. This is loyal love for you and I because of Christ Jesus our Lord whom we have trusted in. And friends, we know that we wait For the one who will not rest. Jesus is not sitting in a hammock, reading a book, enjoying the fresh breeze as he takes a nap. He is active and at work. He will not rest until he settles the matter. Jesus, our groom, will return for us his bride. He will redeem us. He will restore us. And he will get the renown. And we will enjoy him forever and ever. So take heart. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that it is easy to read texts like stories like Ruth and, and, and Paul's reflections in Romans. And to say, these are things that happen to other people. But God, you've dealt differently with me. We confess that it's easy to say these things. Yeah, we believe they're true. It's much harder to live like they are. And so, precious Father, I pray that you would help us by your spirit. To long for Christ's return. To trust him. To wait. As if we know that he will indeed return, which we do. Help us, we pray. Amen.